For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, will storing water underground be a lasting strategy in overcoming the Southwest's water woes? Find out how the Pima County Public Library's Welcome to America team is building community with some of Tucson's newest arrivals. And being stung in the name of science, the career of entomologist Dr. Justin Schmidt, the King of Sting. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The ongoing drought impacting the Colorado River Basin means that some will have to use less water, thanks to a federal mandate that became effective January 1st. In our state, where the cuts will be felt the most, it means a stronger reliance on water that has been stored underground. But that may not be a long-term solution. Here's the latest in a series of stories looking at the situation by KUNC's Alex Hager. In Arizona, where the land is so often defined by the desert, there's plenty of water if you just know where to look. Is there groundwater under our feet right now? Yes. How far? Um, I'm going to say about 200 feet. I'm in a suburban area of Phoenix with Marvin Glotfelty. He's a fourth-generation Arizonan and a hydrogeologist who's worked on more than 1,000 wells, the kind that retrieves the water beneath our feet. If you had a fish tank and you filled it with sand, and then filled that sand, poured water until it went halfway up, and you could see, looking through the glass, and you could see the, the little pebbles, the little grains in there. And there was water in between them. That's what it looks like. And the water between those grains, some of it has been down there for 11,000 years since the Ice Age, but some of it is pumped in by humans who use underground aquifers to store excess water. The problem is, right now, it's being taken out faster than it's put back in. From my technical background, I'd tell you that it's a lot of uh, water providers are pretty close to the edge, pretty close to running out sometimes, and that's really concerning. As Arizona's share from the Colorado River is reduced due to drought, they'll have less excess to store underground and will lean more on what they can store. We should recognize now, as we do with the Colorado River, that we have to take action before it's too late. Kathleen Ferris has made groundwater her life's work, writing some of Arizona's foundational laws on the matter in the early 1980s and later running the state's Water Resources Department. We're still taking more groundwater out than is replenished. And since groundwater is a finite supply, ultimately, if you do that for over a long period of time, you won't have that resource to rely on. If people could only see the groundwater supply shrinking, like they can the bathtub rings left by dropping water levels in Lake Mead, she says, they might be more concerned. But until then... It's a concept that's really gotten out of hand. It has become the go-to mechanism for developing. Ferris says new neighborhoods are built on the promise that they can rely on groundwater for 100 years. But she's skeptical. We will get to a tipping point at some point where there won't be that those renewable water supplies for to buy 
to replenish the groundwater pumped. But she says that hasn't stopped developers. These big master plan communities and these big developments, the developers don't stay around for 100 years and manage what's going on. They, they, they sell the land and they move on. And who is stuck with the problem? The city or the water company that serves that area and the people who live in that area. As for the developers, they see things differently. Well, it is sustainable for residential growth. Spencer Camps works on legal issues for the Arizona Home Builders Association. He says over the years, new homes have actually helped Arizona to use water more sustainably. And the two reasons that we use the same amount of water as we did in 57 is because of residential growth and conservation. Homes, he says, use less water than agriculture. And rules are in place requiring residential areas to put water back. When homes are built on farmland and we retire that ag use and that ag pumping, which is unreplenished, we use less water. But with Phoenix expected to grow by about a million people in the next decade, Kathleen Ferris says you can't have it both ways. It's why she's calling for updates to the groundwater laws she helped to write. You can't just rely on something you did 40 years ago to solve everything. You've got to look at now the situation and figure out what to do next. And that's where we are. We're in the figuring out what to do next phase. Which comes at a critical time. Drought has already forced mandatory cutbacks for some parts of Arizona using water from the Colorado River. And with climate change, water experts say even more cuts are likely to come. I'm Alex Hager in Phoenix. Leaving home to relocate in a foreign country can be a difficult transition in the best of times. Relocating to escape persecution can be traumatic. Unknown to many, the Pima County Public Library maintains a volunteer opportunity for their employees to serve on a special committee, one that makes sure that new arrivals to the United States can get access to the services they need, including library material in their native language, free of charge. Through February 10th, the Pima County Public Library's Welcome to America team is asking for the community's help in assisting refugees from Afghanistan, as my next guests will share. Uh, my name is Irina Delon. Uh, I've been here with the system, I mean, Pima County Public Library for uh, 11 years. I'm a librarian at uh, Miller Golf Links Library. And I'm also a member of uh, Welcome to America Affinity Team. Uh, we serve the community of immigrants, refugees, asylees, everybody who came to this country and adopted it. We provide, expand, and um, deliver services that are, you know, targeted to this uh, community. Uh, for example, we provide tra- translation services, interpretation, collection in different languages, you know, the books in different languages, services like that. Okay, my name is Ratik Rafi, and I'm the president of Tucson Afghan Community. Ratik, when you first arrived in Tucson, what was your impression? Oh, I found this city a very friendly city. Uh, people very nice, very welcoming, and uh, it was an awesome experience. And it reminded me back home. Um, it has the beautiful mountain, so I I blend in right right away. It was really nice, except that I got introduced to cactuses. So we we didn't have cactuses back home, but we got introduced to it, but... <laughs> How is it that the library system became a part of your life here? And what was the significance of that? 
library was not part of our lives back then. We came through an agency. It's a resettlement agency. That's how we got resettled in here in Tucson. And that's how we got introduced to library and we heard about their services and stuff and we collaborated here. They started to help us out with our new arrival refugees a little bit more than a month ago. We met with Irena, a person who is uh, herself an immigrant and uh, very helpful to other families. Irena, she started uh, getting these donations and stuff for us. I mean, she's she's an awesome person there. Thank you. Actually, I can add uh, to Ritik's answer. Uh, I use my personal connections. Uh, my friend of uh, almost 20 years, she is an Afghani woman from Afghanistan. Um, I met her many years ago here in Tucson when I didn't work for the library yet. I worked uh, for a resettlement agency back then, International Rescue Committee. That's how we met, and we became friends. So through her, I was introduced to Afghani community. I know uh, quite a few name, uh, members, and it's a very tight-knit community. They help each other, support each other. They're great people. When I found out about new arrivals from Afghanistan due to recent uh, political turmoil and you know humanitarian crisis in that country, uh, that uh, happened so abruptly and quickly uh, that resettlement agencies were not properly uh, ready to accept them in these big numbers and find them housing and everything, you know, provide the services. And that's when I decided that we need to get involved. I'm talking about the library. Because I'm a member of Welcome to America team, I talked to my members there, and we decided to run this donation drive. What kind of donations are you most hoping the community will provide? What are you really looking for here? Well, Rikik, you answer. <laughs> yes, so most of uh, these people, they are already coming with some clothing uh, from the um, camp and also some other members from other agencies. They provide clothes and stuff. So those are the only items that we say no to it and also big furniture. But other, all the other household items, we are looking for all those kind of items. So anything that we could take to complete a household. We also accept monetary donations in uh, terms of uh, personal checks written to, to a Tucson Afghan community. Tucson Afghan community. We do Afghan not accept community. cash, unfortunately, but yeah. personal checks, yes. I, I just wanted to mention that Tucson Afghan community is um, a, a nonprofit organization. Uh, we formed this committee in uh, August of 2021. We have members that are working constantly on the clock with these families. What is the goal of this drive? Do you know how many Afghan people are going to be arriving in Tucson? Uh, right now, we are actively working with two resettlement agencies, um, the International Rescue Committee and Lutheran Social Ministries. Right now, we have about 400 Afghan people here in Tucson. Okay. Uh, from these 400 people, so about 42 families got their housing, and the rest of them are all still in temporary housing. Eric, um, be sure to mention that we expect more Afghan refugees to come in the uh, few weeks and months, coming weeks and months. Oh, this, right? this is going to continue. So how we have been hearing uh, about the new arrivals, 
uh, that it is going to continue probably until September of this year. Irina, what can you say about the sort of community building that happens through your committee? In the past, when you have helped people to resettle in Tucson, how have you seen that energy come back into the community? When we help those that most in need, we make a difference in their lives and we make a difference in our community. We make a difference in ourselves as people. Um, when I came first to this country, I had no idea of the concept of volunteering. Then I heard about it and I thought, that's what, what I'm going to do when I retire maybe. But I am far from retirement yet and I'm doing it. Um, I think it's a great uh, way to give back. And I'm pretty sure each person, uh, you know, they when they donate, they feel the goodness in them that they help somebody else in need. And right now it's Afghani refugees that need that help urgently. It is very difficult uh, to leave uh, your home, your country, um, and come to, to a different country where you have no knowledge of rules, laws, people, language. Um, uh, it's, it's very tough. When I came here 22 years ago, um, I came with only one bag and about $50 in my pocket. But I met a lot of uh, people, uh, very supportive people, uh, very nice people around me, and uh, they helped me to understand the rules, the, to, uh, to learn how to drive here and how to get my driver's license, for example, and how to find a job, um, starting right away classes. The community is, is amazing here in Tucson. And each one of the people that have been involved in my life, they are still involved and they're still part of my life, like my family here. My guests were Irina DeLone from the Pima County Public Library and Ratik Rafi, president of the Tucson Afghan Community. Through February 10th, the Welcome to America team is focusing on collecting donations for Afghan individuals and families who have relocated to Tucson. There are 15 drop-off sites across the city. There is a list and more information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. You may have met the King of Sting on this show before. Entomologist Justin O. Schmidt gained national fame shortly after the release of his book, Sting of the Wild. I think it's because his research, and I feel like I can safely say this, it really hits a nerve with people. Whether you fear insects or even truly like them, no one wants to be stung or bitten by them, except maybe this one University of Arizona scientist. You'll learn more next in a profile produced by Liz Scherfius. I think I got the moniker King of Sting because, well, I've been stung by more things than anybody else. And the, and the reason I was stung by more things than anybody else was I was trying to uh, get enough data to support or reject my hypothesis that the sting was important in the evolution of sociality. This is the desert blonde tarantula. And they make wonderful pets. They'll live about 20 years once you get them. Let go of my thumb there so I can get my hand free. Whoops, don't, they're kind of clumsy. So 
Back in you go, little girl. I'm Justin Schmidt, entomologist and toxicologist. I work at Southwestern Biological Institute and at the University of Arizona in the Department of Entomology. Yeah, I just have a few uh, desert creatures here. This one I'm not going to touch. This one's called a velvet ant. They call them cow killers. You say, why would you call them a cow killer? Well, because if you pick them up, you will be stung. When they sting, you say, holy cow, that would kill a cow. Basically, I study anything that's predator-prey relationship, but with particular emphasis on stinging insects. We have more species of scorpions than any other state. Aren't we lucky? I think we have about 56 for sure. They just hurt like the dickens for most people, and it goes on, causes numbness and just sheer utter pain. It, they're so venomous that the idea for them is they run into a competition. If you have longer legs and arms, you can kind of be at a distance away from whoever you're, you're grabbing and keeping them so they can't get you, and you're way up over the top and sting them. Of course, once you sting them, that's, that's the end, you've won. Insect sting pain is a, it's a mechanism that allowed the evolution of sociality. In other words, if you're defending yourself and a little sting, little pain, isn't much defense, but a lot of pain is. The more pain you can produce, the larger you can make a social colony, which is going from a solitary individual raising her own offspring to all of a sudden a big colony, like a honeybee colony or ant colony. Normally what happens is I'm out in the field somewhere, an opportunity strikes. Well, that comes with a sting or two, or more. If you have harvester ant, queens can live up to about 45 years, which is pretty much the world record for longevity in insects. So right down here, we have a Maricopa harvester ant colony. Harvester ants, they have colonies that range from, oh, 500 to 15,000, depending on the species. And they need to have a powerful sting to protect them against things that want to eat them, lizards, frogs, toads, things of this sort. What we're gonna do is this is called an aspirator that I've made, which is basically a sucking tube. So you can collect a few ants. And just a convenient way to collect the ants. It's got a screen right here so that you don't wanna suck the ant into your mouth. That would not be a good idea. I'm gonna to try to pick up a couple of them here. I got two so far. There's, we got three ants that should do. I look at two things with stinging insects. First of all, the painfulness of the sting, how much it hurts. And second of all, how toxic, how damaging is the, is the sting. The pain scale basically is one to four, one being very minor. In other words, it hurts a little bit, but not seriously enough won't shut you down or anything of that sort. A two is typically like a honeybee or a yellow jack, and that's darn painful. Anybody who's been stung by either one of those knows they, they really hurt. Everybody used the same old, tired, boring picture, honeybee stinging something. It was so ugly, and I thought, let's see if we can get something better. So I hired the photographer 
to help me get a better picture of what we wanted to show. As you can see the stinger into my arm there. And you can see the jewel, that little round silver white thing. That's the venom sac. You can see the bee exiting, ripping out of the bee. So it shows all the action in one point. And the pain of that was basically a two because I had to sit there and endure the pain without yelling or jerking or doing anything rash like that or else we wouldn't get the photograph. And the three is something much, much worse, kind of like a harvest unit that hurts for one to four to eight hours, throbbing pain. The four, you don't want to go there. Four is like 10 times worse than a three. And that'll be an example of something like the tarantula hawk, where the tarantula hawk stings you and just kind of paralyzes you. You're just such pain, you can't function. And they, of course, are given the name tarantula hawk because they will actually attack and sting a tarantula and paralyze the tarantula. Lay one egg on, just one egg, and that, that egg hatches and feeds on the paralyzed tarantula. One of these, you go, oh my God, it feels like a 20,000 volt wire just zapped you when you get stung. These things are four on the pain scale. In other words, about like a, a hundred honeybees all at once. You know, when I wrote The Sting of the Wild, the reason I wrote it was to instill a sense of joy and beauty and awe of what, what I have for being privileged to be able to study these things. You don't have to be stung like I am. You can, you can miss all that, but you can, we'll take you on a safari and adventures of what happens in the field, how they affect the evolution of science, and just interesting stories. History that brings us together, and it's fun. That profile of entomologist Justin Schmidt was produced by Liz Scherfius for Arizona Illustrated on PBS6. If you're okay with seeing insects up close, you can watch the video at azpm.org. Now, we close this week's show with a reading from a book for young readers called Grow, a Novel in Verse. Author Juanita Havel will introduce us to 12-year-old Kate as she embarks on another neighborhood adventure with her adult friend, Bernitha. Saturday morning, Bernitha's voice booming through the screen door on the front porch. I'm all fired up and ready to go. Who'll come with me? I opened the door shouting, me, where to? Red overalls, blue bandana over henna red hair and a white t-shirt. That's Bernita, older than my mom, looking like the 4th of July and it barely being May, wanting to borrow a rake, hoe, shovel, and me. Mom says, okay. She does most times, especially when it means exercise and burning calories the way cleaning up the lot on the corner will. Bernitha's got big plans. No surprise. Everything about Bernitha is big. Big belly, big heart, big plans. This time at the garden, going to be blooming by the end of summer on Fifth and Vine. Old Mr. Khan's empty lot, and he says, okay. I pack a lunch, set it on the counter. Now where to find the landlord's shovel? I look in the garage, and there it is, with a hoe, too, hardly ever used. Now, Darlene, how about a rake to go with Kate, and you come, too? Too busy. Sorry. Mom shakes her head all the way to the kitchen, comes back with my lunch. 
Later, I find out she took the two devil's food cookies from my lunchbox, gave me carrots instead. About Bernitha, mean, I think, when I hear some people call Bernitha fat. She's not fat. She's big. She's round. There's a lot of her. Bernitha's not meant to fit in the same skinny space reserved for people who care about those things. She's strong, too, and she's smart. She used to be a teacher till they closed down her classroom to send all the special kids she taught someplace else. No money, no class. Which, in a way, I'm glad about, because now she's got way more time for me. Secretly, I think, but don't tell her, that some of her kids don't miss her. I've been to her class, seen the kids. Some of them didn't know who the teacher was or where they were. When I walked in, they didn't say, yo, or what's up, or who are you, the way most kids would if a visitor showed up. About Bernitha, she grows things, catnip, mushrooms, parsley, crystals, avocado, tomato, grapefruit, penicillin. One time, she grew an oak tree from a seedling she dug out of a wide crack in a broken sidewalk and planted it in the park because oak trees need space. Bernitha's words. We all do. She collects things. Buttons, bottle caps, beer steins, river water and little bottles, feathers, marbles, and 123 recipes for cheesecake. Bernitha knows things. How to cure hiccups by putting a spoon in a glass of water and staring at it while you hold your breath and sip the names of all the American presidents and anyone who was ever governor of Mississippi, Illinois, or Minnesota. Where to find blackberries in the middle of town in June and pick them without getting chigger bites. She does things, sizzling, stirring, zapping, rocking, purring, jumping, dancing things. With Bernita, everything happens big time. Even the quiet things, like sitting still, and staring at frost on the window in winter, or counting cricket chirps when the summer sun sets, or staying up past midnight searching the sky with binoculars to get a look at a comet as it travels past planet Earth for its once-in-my-lifetime visit. Hello, comet. What I like most is going over to Bernitha's and finding out what's up. Juanita Havel is an author, retired educator, and library enthusiast who lives in Sonoida. Grow, a novel in verse for young readers by Juanita Havel, with illustrations by Stanislaw Kodman, was published by Peachtree. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.